Joel Bowermaster, and I'm pleased to welcome you all to part three of our three-part discussion with researcher, truth seeker, and author Jim Elvidge. Jim, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Phil. Good to be back. I'm looking forward to this third one. I think we're going to talk about all, all the fun stuff now. That's right. We've, As I said at the end of uh, part two, here we are in part three, and we've, we've paid our dues by laying the groundwork. In part one, we talked about why we're living in a simulation. In part two, we talked about some of the basic infrastructure of reality. And in part three, we're going to get to paradoxes, anomalies, and other fun, weird stuff. So I want to start out talking a little bit. I've got a few questions about the soul and reincarnation and some of those ideas. And then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, other anomalies, uh, precognition, we're going to talk about the Mandela effect, of course, and then I want to come back as promised and talk a little bit about the many worlds hypothesis and parallel universes. And finally, we're going to end on one of the things we talk about all the time on this program, which is transhumanism. You have some interesting things to say about that. So uh, you ready to, ready to dive into this? Absolutely. Let's dive in. All right, man. So let's begin with reincarnation. Okay. Now, there is this idea of having a soul, but there's actually there's some Buddhist sects, sects, say that carefully, who believe in reincarnation, but they don't talk about an eternal soul, but instead they talk about this kind of karmic energy being passed from one lifetime to another. And when I, when I read that a while back, it reminded me a little bit of Rupert Sheldrake. You're familiar with him, I assume. Yes. Yeah, he has this idea of morphic resonance, morphic. of information being transferred mm -hmm. between entities, and it kind of allows the universe to learn. Now, could some process like that account for, for what, what we, the phenomena that is described as reincarnation rather than there's these individual souls that are passing from lifetime to lifetime? Yeah, and again, I think this gets down to the definition of the terms. You know, what is a soul? That means so many different things to different people. And it, it, the way you describe that one possibility of uh, transferring energy is kind of consistent with the model that I'm talking about here. I think of it this way, and you know, maybe we can kind of fit this into the model, that you know, our, our soul is the essence of that individuated consciousness, that little cloud that's out there and all that there is that is separate um, and connected to the Reality Learning Lab. So when we die, we sever that connection with the Reality Learning Lab. Now we're you know, our awareness is somewhere else. And it's, you know, the, you know, the evidence for that is, has been mystical experiences, meditation, uh, ritualistic drumming, dance, things like that, um, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, lots of different, you know, mechanisms to get there. And then at some point you reconnect into a different avatar, essentially. So um, what's permanent about this? Well, what, what might be permanent is um, your recollection of past lives to some extent. I mean, there does seem to be a record of everything. You know, people have been able to tap into some weird things. People have eidetic memory. People have, you know, strong recollections of, of past lives sometimes. And that yep. if it is going to happen to one person, then it's likely that that data is out there in general. Um, so, so, so there's something that's, that's retained there. But I think also the learnings that you have um, are retained, so the essence of your consciousness seems to be retained. Uh, so what does that mean? When, when, when we talk about like passing energy back and forth, you could say that's the energy. The energy is that essence of what you learned um, that is passed from life to life. Um, but, you know, what's the real underlying physical construct that creates that, the reality cells, the organized bits that we talked about in the previous uh, podcast? Um, that we don't know. I mean, that, that's something we, we probably can't even experiment with. We can maybe, you know, learn about it when we're in that state, you know, and asking other entities, you know, what's it all about? What's it made of? How did it come about? And some people have done that and gotten some answers, and those answers seem to be somewhat consistent. But, you know, what, what the mechanism actually is is a little hard to say. So I can fit that model that you talked about into this model, um, but it sounds a little bit more, a little bit more vague to me, and it doesn't yeah. explain the um, the continuity of past life recall that some people have. Right, right. Well, let, let's stick with this just for a minute because this is really interesting. When, when you talk about the fact that there is 
a certain amount of consistency among the accounts. And basically, just to, just to recap, as we talked about in the previous show, there, there, there's a general notion of you've got this individuated consciousness. It's learning through a, a, a series of lifetimes, a series of lives, lives here on Earth. And so I'm in one now, maybe before I was in one in the 19th century or earlier in the 20th century, something like that. And then I'll, I'll go back to the, the, the spirit realm, the, 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 the realm where the universal consciousness exists. I'll spend some time there, and then I'll come back here where I'll live another lifetime and I'll learn more lessons, right? That's the basic model. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so, but you do get these odd exceptions, those where, where people talk about uh, other lives and they talk about living in a completely different universe, right? Um, and is it possible, or maybe maybe I've had past lives that weren't in North America, maybe they were in China or or you know someplace Atlantis or something like that. Is it is it possible that keeping kind of with the morphic resonance idea just for a second, maybe we remember the ones that occur more or less nearby, kind of in time and in space. And maybe that's why, for example, if you survey Indian kids about their past lives, I've read just a little bit about this, they generally remember having lived in India, right? They generally, you know, sometimes in a village a couple hundred miles away or something like that. So maybe we have these vastly different lives in other worlds, but they're not resonating much with this world, so maybe we don't get memories of those. Yeah, this, it, it's really hard to say, but, um, you know, I, I go by some of the things that I've read, and, and I don't believe everything that I read, but some things seem to uh, have a little bit more, I, mean, I kind of pass the SNP test a little better than others. And, you know, there are some accounts that say that um, in the in-between life state, you choose, you work with a spirit guide or, you know, a helper perhaps to choose what your next uh, thing is. And it's not uh, something you know, uh, you know, deep and mystical, it's like, I need to learn patience, or I need to learn uh, to get along with people better, or I don't really know what pain is like, or whatever those things are that are going to elevate your, uh, your consciousness. Those are the lessons that you're trying to get. So you, you, you pick a, um, you know, another avatar, uh, another life to live in the reality learning lab, and maybe you have a tendency to just pick something that's familiar to you. You know, I've been in the United States a whole lot, or I've been in Europe a whole lot. I want to do that again. I want to connect with these, you know, these other people, these, uh, uh, you know, what, what do you call them, you know, uh, soul, uh, uh, you know, individuals that, that you kind of reconnect with in, in different lives. Um, right. You know, you know, I want to do that. And, and so even, even at the um, ethereal level, our consciousness may not be so evolved that they want to experience other universes or other things that are so far outside of our uh, normal experience. We want to learn our experiences or get our, our next experiences in something familiar to us. So that's possible. Um, but there are lots of cases of people that bounce around from country to country, from gender to gender, uh, you know, w- working with the same uh, entities that they have before, but in different relationships. You know, somebody who was once your husband is now your daughter or whatever, those kinds of things. And um, so, so, you know, it does seem like there's a little bit to the idea of a tendency toward familiarity, but, but I'd also say that we tend to recall things that are more familiar, and, and this idea of resonance fits that model, too. Um, you know, if you look at it's at somebody's, uh, you know, face, for example, and you've seen a lot of people who have a face similar to that, they're going to remind you of somebody rather than not. So there might be just this tendency to recall things that are more similar to you. It, it also reminds me a little bit of uh, some of the experiences people have had with uh, DMT and uh, some other kind of psychedelics, they're so far out of the norm, they're frightening to people. I mean, we, right. we really don't want to go too far away from what our normal experience is, is other, because it'll, it'll be frightening, disturbing, unsettling, whatever the words are, um, we tend to not like those. Um, that's, why, that's why fantasy games are not that different. You know, even when you go into outer space and, and fight the aliens, they generally have uh, two arms and eyes and, you know what I mean, they, they, they're, they're not that different. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, and, and it, it kind of goes back to what we were saying um, in the last show when, when, when I asked, is it possible that the picture we're getting of the spiritual realm right now is somewhat limited? And the resonance would, would partly account for that. You know, are we, are we currently looking at kind of a heliocentric view of the, the whole spiritual realm just because we're, we're, we're getting what's familiar and we're getting what, what uh, resonates and what, and what shows up in this world, which might be very different mm-hmm. from once you get the full picture? Yeah, and, and I think later on you said you wanted to talk about um, parallel realities or parallel universes. There's, you know, ample possibilities there. So, you know, if you think of this reality learning lab as being one subsystem that's within all that there is, <clears throat> there's no reason why there aren't a bunch of parallel ones with different rules of physics and, and different, completely different experiences that you could jump into if you want to. Right, um, but in this body... In, in this life, it's hard to – you don't process that because you just don't have the equipment for it, right? It's like Exactly, right. Yeah, so you, don't, yeah. so you don't remember that. Well, now, let's talk about this uh, precognition experiment that you referenced. You talk, you talk about a number of uh, bits of research that have been done into psychic phenomena. And it turns out if you want to research this, folks, there's a good deal of evidence that there's something going on there. There, there actually is – fairly good scientific evidence that precognition and remote viewing and some of these other things are real phenomena, that they're, they're, not, they're not the woo that the, uh, that the, the clowns right, would, would, would have you believe, that, but there actually is a, a legitimate phenomenon going on there. And one of the tests you talk about is really interesting, a precognition experiment where students remembered words they were about to type, right? It's not like they're predicting. Mm-hmm. It's like they're remembering something before it happens. They're remembering the future. Now, that raises a question for me, and it comes back to the idea of past lives, although the word past becomes problematic at this point, because within the context of the reality learning lab, this, this reality that we're, that we're currently experiencing, is the future already there? Is it possible that we're, our lives are occurring out of what we would think of as chronological order. So I could have a life now, and then my next one could be back in the Middle Ages or something like that, right, where, where we're bouncing around in time like, like uh, on Doctor Who, right? Uh, yeah, the, so that's uh, – let's, let's talk a little bit about the experiment first and what the possible um, solutions to that experiment could be. Uh, and it's just one that I picked out, but there are others that are similar. Um, and then we can talk about does that mean that there's uh, some time travel or that time doesn't exist and, and so forth. So w- what happened in this experiment was done by a guy named Daryl Bem, um, actually came from my alma, alma mater, Cornell University, and uh, used uh, you know, some rigorous methods. It looked like you know, a well-designed scientific experiment, despite what the naysayers will, uh, you know, will have you believe. And basically, it's a, a very common kind of um, learning experiment where he shows people a bunch of words and then at some point later on, maybe uh, days later, um, he'll show them some pictures of, of some of those words and then sometime, a third time later on, he'll ask them to recall as many words as possible and they tend to recall the ones where they saw the reinforcement, the picture, you know, in the, in the second time that they were exposed to this. That's just testing memory and, and correlations and things like that. But what yeah, he just, did, which was just, fascinating. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, what he did was fascinating. He flipped step three with step two. So right. he'd show them the words, then he would ask them to recall as many words as possible, and then later he would show them the, uh, you know, the pictures that would remind them of certain words. And he found that there was a statistical significance between the words that they picked and the ones that they later saw pictures of, as if they, there was some sense of uh, precognition there. Now, the, the thing that's uh, – I'm, I'm sorry I, I uh, interrupted you there, Phil. Was there something no, not at to, all. I was, just about to, I was just about to say, but what you're describing is pretty conventional. W- w- yes. What he did was actually a lot weirder than you were going straight to it anyway, so sorry about that. Yeah, yeah so he, yeah, he flipped that around. And um, to, to appreciate this, you know, it's – you're going to get some results that say something like, well, okay, you know, it, it's 56% or it's, you know, just a little bit beyond chance. 
But sometimes that can be really significant. A little bit beyond chance isn't significant if it's a small sample set. But a little bit, you know, a few percentage beyond chance, beyond 50-50 chance, is really significant when you have a large number of people. It's like flipping a penny. If you flip a penny um, in 100 times, there's a good chance it is going to come up 51% heads. But if you flip it a million times, there's a very small chance that it's going to come up 51% heads. Uh, right. because of the, the, the numbers. That's just the way the statistics work. So, and in so fact, that, if it comes up 51% heads, there's something wrong, right? Or there's something else going on. Either, either that right. point is weighted, or, right? But, but there, there is another factor involved at that point uh, beyond just what you think of as the, as the coin flip. Exactly. And, and it's been estimated that his, the results of his experiment show something going on, as you said, um, uh, with the odds against chance of one in seventy-four billion, right? So right. there's there's definitely something going on there. And so what could it be? There there are a number of possibilities in the digital consciousness uh, model. I mean, one is evidence is rewritten after the fact. So after the students are told the words to type, you know, the system goes back and rewrites all the record of the students' guesses so as to create that precognitive anomaly. Um, that that's something that seems to be happening in the Mandela effect. Um, but that, you know, that's a possibility. But another one is that you know, the system could be selecting those randomly typed words to match the results that also generates this anomaly. Or we live in this observer-created reality. The whole sequence of events is either planned out or it's influenced by intent and then just played out by the experimenter and the students. Uh, so in other words, you know, the system knows what's, what's, you know, coming. The system can maybe influence the selection uh, of things. If it's coming out of, a, out of a computer, the system is in control of that. Right. So, so they, they, there are a lot of mechanisms that could explain this, but you can't explain it without letting go of the materialist paradigm. Right, right. Absolutely. Okay, so now what about, uh, what about moving around in time? Uh, so moving around in time... You know, I, I think, and this is, this is where I haven't done a whole lot of thinking about it, to be honest. Uh, I think Tom Campbell's done more thinking about this kind of thing. And, you know, he, he views this as, you know, when you're in the, what he calls non-physical matter reality, what, what I call ATTI perhaps, um, when you're in that state, you can run simulations. You can say, well, you know, what if all of these scenarios play out? What would the future be like? So there is almost like no sense of time. You know, the fact that you're able to run simulations in parallel, um, you know, in, implies that there really isn't a sense of time. If you think about it, our sense of time is rooted in this reality learning lab that we have. It's, uh, you know, it's defined by our, our laws of physics. We define what a second is. Our brain processes things in a certain way. Um, we experience passage of time due to the, um, you know, the, the way it's set up. Um, same with the physics of space. But in all that there is, there isn't such a thing. So the, the idea of time kind of goes away. That's why I think you often hear about time disappeared, you know, in my near-death experience or, you know, when I meditated, time, uh, you know, time stretched out or you hear these kinds of expressions because people, are, their awareness is getting away from the reality learning lab. Um, so could there be parallel things going on? Yeah, um, I, I suppose there could. Somehow, to me, though, I feel like there's something fundamental about the fact that you're building on your experience in your soul one life after another. So there's still some sequence of learning that's going on. So to me, I don't believe that living a life in the 15th century comes after living the life right now, even though I could simulate it and experience it for one reason or another, I think, you know, the, the, the lessons that I've, you know, reincarnated, uh, that I've learned through reincarnations, they have to build on each other. So, you know, I feel like there's still some sense of time in all that there is in the, in the deeper reality. There's some why sense would, of why would they need to Why would they need to build on each other across historical time, right? The doctor, right, as a character on Doctor Who, he is learning and growing as a person, experiencing uh -huh. time non-sequentially, right? So he, he could go back to, 
prehistoric times and learned patience there, right? And then jump ahead to the 1950s and learn to be, I don't know, less sexist or something, that whatever it is he's learning these days, I don't know, uh, in, in, in the 1950s, right? You could, you, you could actually have that progression within a subjective experience mm-hmm. that isn't experiencing time according to what, what I was Yeah, actually, historical Phil, history. you make a really good point, and I hadn't really thought of it that way, and I, I, I like that. I think that's, that's definitely a possibility. Well, see, I'll tell you why I think this, because I, I'm not 100% sure I'm bought in on reincarnation yet. However, it occurred to me, this is a weird thought I had, okay? Why am I so interested in the future? Maybe I've already been there, right? That's the, <laughs> the, the strange idea I've had, that maybe, maybe I've, I've backed up for some reason. I don't know. I had something else I needed to learn in, uh, in this lifetime. Okay, so let's talk. Just one more question about the soul, and then we're going to move on to some other stuff, but, or about the individuated consciousness, let's call it. Now, mm-hmm. in your view, where do we go in the long run? Let's say we learn all the lessons that, that we have to learn. Will, will we always exist as individu- individuated consciousness, or is it possible that a bunch of us join up together into some expanded non-individual consciousness, or do we retreat back into the universal non-individuated consciousness? Is there a... Is there an end game for us? Well, I think a lot of the Eastern religions would call the end game merging with the larger consciousness. So uh, the idea of nirvana or, uh, you know, achieving that, that point where uh, you've purified your soul and now you become one with God, that kind of thing. So I think that there's definitely a possibility to that. You know, some of the anecdotal stuff, like from Bob Monroe and uh, William Bullman and others, uh, it, it, it sounds a little bit more, uh, a little less esoteric, I think, where, you know, you may get to the point where you don't want, you don't need, feel that you need to, to learn anymore and you want to experience something in a different way. Um, Monroe talks about experiencing entities that never had the connection to the reality learning lab. Like their role in reality was something completely different. They were just helpers. And, and so they never really, you know, evolve that individuated consciousness through experiences in the reality learning lab. They did something completely different. So that, you know, I think all things are possible. You know, could you merge a couple of consciousnesses? Could you occupy a couple of uh, avatars at the same time? You know, there's, there's anecdotal evidence of all of these things, and, and, and the model supports it. So, you know, I think it's, um, it's kind of up for grabs. And, and basically the overriding force, the forcing function is the desire to advance and to um, evolve uh, the larger consciousness. And if that's something that does it, yeah, maybe we do do that. Okay. Well, and we'll come back to this when we talk about uh, transhumanism. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the many worlds hypothesis once again. Actually, what I want to talk about is Occam's razor, because here's, here's my challenge to you on... Uh, on Occam's razor. If, if many worlds is a violation of Occam's razor, um, isn't it pretty straightforward to say that things like memories of past lives and out-of-body experiences and th- th- those kinds of phenomena are most likely common brain phenomena, that they're, that they're probably common delusions, common brain artifacts of some kind? Wouldn't Occam's razor tell us to go for those explanations rather than these more interesting ones, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, I think... I think they have, and that's why it's important to look for corroborating evidence. If somebody mm-hmm. says, hey, I, I recall a past life, great, you know, I could dream up a past life very easily, but um, I recall a past life where there were, you know, these speci- this specific house in this specific uh, area. Okay, great, maybe you saw that on the Internet. Okay, well, what about people who experienced this before the Internet, never read a book about it, um, you know, never knew anybody who was from that area? Or what about children? And, and this is where when you start to filter out the, the arguments against it, the arguments for the it's just a delusion type of thing, um, you can filter those out with uh, children, for example. And that's why um, uh, uh, James Leninger, I think the name was, I think that's why his, his experience is interesting. He was so young when he had very clear uh, recollection of a past life that both of his parents, who were very well aware of what he was exposed to, uh, said, no, he, he never had, he never saw movies about this, we never read things about this. this, this came out of nowhere, the names, the details, and things like that are, 
you know, strikingly they go in the face of the delusion hypothesis. So all it takes is a few of those, and there are quite a few. Uh, Ian Stevenson collected a, a lot of information about uh, uh, past life recollect recollections uh, from children and others. All it takes is a few, um, but there are actually quite a few that, that um, have enough corroborating evidence that you know, the delusion hypothesis is no longer accurate. Right. What about this objection to, I, I, you mentioned briefly Rhonda Byrne and the secret in the, the book, and one of the critiques that's been raised against her is, I think she made a statement to the effect that the, when the tsunami occurred in 2005, that the people in Indonesia, basically they had brought that on themselves in some sense, right? That the, the, their thought patterns had led them to that, or uh, one I, I perhaps mistaken reading of what you're saying here would be people chose that life, right? So they, they chose to have that happen. What, what do you make of the, or how do you respond to the moral objection that there's a blame the victim kind of feel to the idea of karma? Um, can you express that a little more, Phil? I'm oh, not sure. sure I understand. So, for example, let's say you got a three-year-old dying of leukemia, right? Mm -hmm. um, is, is it your position that, well, that's the life she picked, right? Um, you know, we're, we're all supposedly in the other realm picking these lives. D does that impact how much empathy and sympathy we have for people in this life? Because basically we've all pretty much picked our own circumstances. Yeah, so I... You know, I don't think that we pick all the details about our life. That would almost be like super determinism. And, yeah. you know, I, I think it's more along the lines of we're trying to learn a lesson. So the, the system may kind of push us toward uh, certain, certain ways of learning that lesson or meeting certain, peoples at cer certain people at certain times. Um, you know, having a life abruptly cut short could be due to chance. I think there's still a lot of... Um, uncertainty due to free will and, and chance that goes on in this reality. And that's something that, again, is easily explained by, you know, a, a systemic um, or a system-based programmatic construct uh, that has the possibility of random numbers and, and random chance. Yeah, it's all possible. Okay. So bad things happen and they're just bad things. We don't have to say everything bad that happens is good. Yeah, and we also have this idea that um, that there's evil, there's, there's bad, and this, this is an area, it can be a kind of a touchy area because people feel very, um, uh, very protective of certain ideas or experiences that they've had and so forth. Um, but when you get right down to it, what, what is reality all about? You know, your, your past experiences don't exist anymore. You know, they exist in a record which your memory uh, has part of, but um, you know, are they bad? Did they, did they change you in some way? Did they change you in a positive way or did they change you in a negative way? Was it an experiment that, that went wrong or went, went bad? You know, when you start like digging into, you know, what is evil and what is bad and what is good, um, it really kind of, there's not a clear cut distinction on those things. I think people have subjective interpretations of what constitutes evil and right and wrong and things like that. Um, but there, there is no universal rule about a lot of this. And we do have, I do believe that we have free will. So, you know, the evil that you might call evil that happens in the world happens because people have free will and they're doing things based on their motivations. And perhaps their uh, soul hasn't evolved to the point where they uh, have the right level of empathy with the other person that they should have. They're still thinking, you know, in terms of grabbing all that they can. Uh, and that's, that's an evolutionary process. So the, the existence of bad, the existence of evil does not at all go against this philosophy. Yeah, okay, yeah. There's an interesting distinction that C.S. Lewis makes in, in one of his books, obviously a pretty orthodox Christian theologian, but he talks about, he talks about evil, which is bad things people do. And then he talks about badness, right, which is just this kind of awful stuff that can happen sort of built into the universe, that, that free will actually re relies, in order for people to be free, there has to be a certain amount of capability for things just to go bad, right, the randomness you were talking mm -hmm. about before. You, you can't really have randomness and everything works out great, right? And uh, you can't really have evil if 
if all people can do is choose to choose to be good. And and if you don't have that possibility, then you don't actually have freedom, right? So so that in order exactly. to yeah. in in order to live in a world that's free, there has to be a certain amount of badness and the capability for 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 people to to become evil. So there you go. See? Yeah, I, actually, I, I totally agree with that. And they, you know, another way of looking at that or or kind of a, a correlation, a corollary to it is the idea that we, that we learn from failure. We don't learn from doing the same thing over and over again. We, you know, maybe we learn to be a little bit more efficient about how we do that thing. But the big, um, the big jumps that we make in our learning, the discrete uh, discontinuities that we make in our, our learning, the evolution of our consciousness, those happen from failures and from things that you would normally think of as negative. It's an important part of reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, now we're finally going to talk about the Mandela effect, Jim. I hope you're ready. Okay. Okay, I know you mentioned in uh, the, the first episode that you have a, a theory on this, so I'm anxious to hear that too. Well, first I'm going to raise the big, my big objection to the Mandela effect and my general position on the Mandela effect, but then I'm going to, then I'm going to set you straight on the James Bond thing. Okay, so it's a two-prong, it's a, okay. a one-two punch I'm giving you here. Okay, I hope you're ready. Okay, so first right. off, on the Mandela effect, obviously there are whole volumes of research published on how flawed human memory is, right? We, we know that, you know, eyewitnesses aren't very reliable and people predictably can remember things wrong. So once again, whipping out Occam's razor, isn't it more reasonable to believe that people remember things wrong than it is to suggest, right, that there's a universal consciousness having a laugh by changing the name of a children's book author or re-editing a James Bond movie from 40 years ago, right? That's again, it... it Yes, and it boils down to uh, statistical significance to me. If okay. one person out of 100 remembers something differently, uh, then by Occam's razor, I would say, yeah, probably uh, it was a bad recollection. If 100 people out of 100 or 99 people out of 100 remember something differently, then I'm going to have a different uh, opinion of that. And so, you know, if, if, you, if you look at the evidence, I think there are a lot of things. Like, for example... I remember as a child, I remember the, the church that I went to um, having a fire two times. My, uh -huh. uh, my parents say, no, it only happened one time. And it did only happen one time, but I was certain that there was a second time. So I may have had a precognitive type of episode there. Uh, that's right. just one example. But, you know, so you could also argue, you know, was Jim wrong? Um, you know, Jim was wrong in their subjective experience, but I'm not sure Jim was wrong in Jim's sub subjective experience. We all, all we are having is subjective experiences, and they aren't necessarily 100% um, equal to each other. So, right. so getting back to the Mandela effect, um, yeah, I think it depends, and, and I think there are probably a lot of things where, uh, you know, its, it's recollection is due to maybe a, um, an urban legend that got promoted on a website or uh, you know, TV show or something like that, people remember that because it, they have shown that when you remember something, you don't remember what originally happened. You remember the last time you recalled it. Oh, so right. it's definitely subject to change over the years. My, uh, my wife grew up in Malaysia, and she and I have been arguing for 20 years now over whether there was an American movie called The Greatest American Hero that showed in cinemas that starred Gene Wilder. Now, obviously, because she went to see it as a kid, obviously there was The Greatest American Hero. It was a made-for-TV movie, and it, it starred William Catt. And part of the issue here might be that sometimes made-for-TV movies in the U.S. actually do get shown in other markets in, in the cinemas. And, and so it's possible, I've never actually researched this, but it's possible that movie was shown in cinemas. And William Catt kind of looks like Gene Wilder, so... You know, and she was just mm -hmm. a kid, so she just she just uh, she confused the whole thing, conflated the whole thing. However, if she were on the line with us right now, she would insist absolutely, right, that this was a big Hollywood production, and it starred Gene Wilder. Now, um, what's interesting about that is it's a sample of one, right? So maybe, maybe she's right. wrong, maybe she's right. But is it possible if these odd things are happening that like one person could potentially have experienced something subjectively completely different from everybody else? They clearly have. Um, by definition, they've, they've experienced something subjectively different. True. How okay, real yeah. is that is the question. Yeah, yeah. All right, so now we've got to talk about Dolly and Jaws. So okay. set, Go set it. it up for us, Jim. 
No, no, you set it up. You're the, sure. Yeah. So um, the James Bond movie Moonraker uh, came out in the 70s, I think, and it featured uh, a henchman named uh, Jaws. Jaws was played by a guy, Richard Keel. Uh, One of the all-time great Bond villains, by the way, right? Which is oh, absolutely. All-time great bad guys, yeah. And he, I think he was in two two movies. He was in The Spy Who Loved Me and then in Moonraker that right. Right, uh, was right after that. And he had a big mouthful of metal, and his way of killing people was he'd bite them on the neck and, and kill them <laughs> that way. So, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a great character. And you just looked at him, and then he would just smile, and, you know, you'd, you'd see the, the metal teeth and everything. So in this movie, in Moonraker, um, he's in Brazil, I believe. He's in a cable car, and it crashes, and... Um, as he's pulling himself out of the rubble, this young blonde woman comes, uh, you know, half his size. She comes up to help him move things out to get him out of out of the rubble. She's got ponytails, pigtails or something, and uh, uh, glasses, if I remember. And the two of them look at each other, and he smiles with that, you know, big mouthful of metal. And she smiles with her braces, and uh, and because they have that connection, or at least that's what we think as the audience, they fall in love and they walk off hand in hand and the music swells and, you know, they're, they're together the rest of the movie and he's never right. a, a bad Classic guy again. After and that. everybody who's seen the movie remembers that scene, right? Just about. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and now if you go back and look at the movie, you pick a DVD, you, you uh, watch it on Netflix, whatever, uh, she doesn't have braces anymore. So what happened? Well, you know, one could argue that uh, she never had braces, and for some reason we conflated that with his mouthful of metal. Um, but then the movie, the scene doesn't even make any sense. The whole point that they fell in love was that the reason we laughed at it when it happened, these were kind of campy movies at the time, the whole reason we laughed at it was because they both had mouthful of metal, and that's, you know, that was their connection, that what got them to fall in love. In addition... There is so so the the scene doesn't even make any sense anymore. It's not funny anymore without that aspect to it. But in addition, there is um, a BBC obituary, a BBC generated obituary about Richard Keel, where they reference this scene uh, where Dolly, uh, the the young woman, had braces, and they mentioned that. And right. this was this came out uh, years ago. Um, Somebody has unearthed uh, some examples of her having braces, uh, pictures uh, from the web. But, of course, you know, with Photoshop, you could always create those. But the point seems to be, this seems to be one of the main things where most people remember it that way. Um, so I'm here interested at this point to hear you, you know, talk about your theory. Okay, well... I'm just. I'm sorry, Stephen isn't able to be here with us because uh, I'm going to have to repeat this now, or unless he actually listens to the show. So I'm going to. I'm, I'm finally going to lay this one to rest. Okay. I think. I, I think I've got this one. This one figured out. Or at least here's one other possible explanation. Put it this way. Uh, let's. Let's not say that my view is definitive, even though you know, probably. Um, so. So here's. Here's. Here's what I think is going on in that scene. All right. Um, and I remember the braces too, by the way. Um, but what I think a lot of people are remembering is there's actually a very famous scene in the Brady Bunch where at the end of the episode where Marsha gets braces and she loses her date to the prom and then this guy shows up to take her to the prom and she's so happy to see him. She smiles and he smiles back with the braces. I think that image is implanted in a lot of heads. And the thing is, the joke is there, but it would have been better and people have improved it with memory. Because actually the joke is, I mean, think about it. I think you've never seen the movie before, right? What are the chances that any human being is going to look at Jaws and smile, okay? That's actually the joke, right? There's, a, there's an attractive, normal person here, and she sees Jaws, and he smiles at her, and she doesn't run away screaming. I think that was the joke. It's lame compared to the good one, which, which has the braces. So I think across the board in our memory, we've maybe conflated it with the Brady Bunch scene, and we have improved it, right? Because it would have been better if she'd had braces. I, I think there's, there's no question about that. But if people do misremember it then, it, then it's not at all unusual that someone would have said that in a review, they, or excuse me, in an obituary, because they would have remembered seeing it that way, right? So the fact that people subsequently talked about it, I don't think is much evidence, except for the fact that it's, it's evidence that, that everybody remembers it that way. Although, having said all that, it really seems like she had braces. So I, I, I have a hard time... Uh, I have a hard time being completely convinced with that. However, have you heard this one? You know, in The Matrix, right, um, Morpheus never says, uh, what if I told you? 
In what context? Uh, oh, I don't know if you've seen those memes that go around. What if I told you this war could end tonight? What if I told you this world is not? There's, there's just a whole uh, set of beliefs about the, the Lawrence Fishburne character. And mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like uh, Play It Again, Sam, right? It's this line that is continually, right. repeatedly attributed to him. And my memory, uh, I can hear it in his voice, right, in my head. And, and he never said it. So I'm going with, I think we, we, we do a great job of reverse editing these things and that common, people commonly reverse edit things in the, in, in the same way. Doesn't that make more sense really than, I mean, isn't that easier than going to all the trouble of the, the world actually changing behind us? Um, no. <laughs> I, I respectfully disagree on, on, your, uh, on your Moonraker one, and I'll tell you why. I never saw the Brady Bunch. Um, and, and I clearly remember um, Dolly having braces, and, and I haven't polled all the other people who uh, remember the uh, Dolly having braces, whether they saw the Brady Bunch. But you know, I, I didn't. I didn't watch that show. Um, so, and, and, and the second thing is, it, it still doesn't make sense to me. So, you know, if she didn't have braces in the movie, why would she smile at him? She smiled at him because he smiled. She saw the mouthful of metal, and she thought, "Oh, well, that's." That's fine. I got a mouthful of metal too. You know that all made sense to me. But, but well, I, I agree thing... that's better. I agree that's better. But it's also funny that anyone would see him and and respond with a smile. Don't you think? Mildly funny. Yeah, yeah I just He's I, I don't right. I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't feel in fitting with the the campy theme of of the movie. But you know, I, I'll leave it as a as a possibility. And I think probably the most important thing we want to talk about is what could be the mechanism behind this. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and a lot of people have proposed the many worlds theory, the multi-universe theory, that yeah, there was um, a world where she didn't have braces and there was one where she did have braces, which according to the Everett interpretation of quantum mechanics, all those worlds would have to exist. But the problem with that is that um, in that interpretation of quantum mechanics, you can't travel between the worlds. Um, right. Now, that, that interpretation could be wrong. It could be modified someday. But as as of you know the the way the science is now, it's called Hilbert space. And once you're in one world, you can't jump over to another. So that would, that's not a good explanation for for this this thing. But what could be a good explanation for it is bearing in mind that you know we're living in a virtual reality. That these things are simulations of sorts. That there there is a record of every single artifact that we can pull out when we try to remember things and that the system for whatever reason could go back and replace all of those. So imagine, for example, if you had a, um, a you know, a, a computer game, we've used this uh, example before to try to, um, you know, correlate to what I'm talking about. You had a computer game where you're, you're playing in there and the designer of the game decided to put a patch in where they replaced all the pine trees with palm trees. It's not hard to do that. It's very simple to, to do that. So from an Occam's razor standpoint, that's an easy solution. And, and I think when we invoke Occam's razor, a lot of people invoke it in the context of, well, what's the Occam's razor, what's the simplest solution that makes sense in a materialist-based world? I'm saying that world doesn't exist. So if you, you know, take those constraints out and say, what's the Occam's razor solution in a non-materialist-based world, now you start looking more at the things that we're talking about. You know, 90% of people remembered her having braces. Well, she probably did have braces. Ah, okay. Well, I, so really what you're saying is Occam's razor doesn't apply once you've bought into digital consciousness pretty much as a whole, right? I mean, that, that's... No, I, I, I think it does apply. I, I like the whole theory of Occam's razor, but... But Occam's razor. It, it, I, I mean, for this one. You, yeah. No, even even for this one. So if if you if you recognize that um, our subjective reality is soft, that there is no objective reality out there. Um, we we talked about in the, in the last two episodes all the scientific evidence for that. Um, if it's soft, it's that means it's malleable. It can be changed, and if it can be changed, and most people remember something differently, and you know, it can't be explained by, uh, by urban legends or, or things like this, then let's take it at face value and, and assume that 
you know, the, the Occam's razor solution is that those artifacts got changed. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to leave that for now because I think that uh, I think that we could probably talk about this for quite. And I got lots more examples I could I could whip out and we could go back and forth on on the Mandela effect. But let me tell you, that is as solid a defense of the Mandela effect as I've ever heard anyone give. I think he. he <laughs> oh, good. Glad to hear. If it. you're gonna if you're gonna believe in the Mandela effect, you got to go with what Jim is saying. I think that's the it's the only one that makes sense. Now, I want to ask you about you mentioned the many worlds hypothesis and um, you're not too kind to to that idea in the book basically for reasons just stated it, it's something that that you um, reject I'm, I'm going to try to bring it back in let's see if I can okay so there's a book called the end of time by Julian Barber are you familiar with that yes I, I read okay. that yes okay. in fact he's, I think he's one of the people that you know from the, the you know pure scientific community that really um, did some very good thinking about the discrete nature of reality in terms of space and time. Right. Okay. So exactly. He's got this model that, that basically it has this, I'm, I'm probably overly simplifying it, but I'll, I'll do my best here. This vast configuration space where all the possible universes and every possible event, they already exist. And what we think of as time and things happening is just a, sort of a waveform of probability running through all that. So if you, if you put the many worlds into that model and synthesize it with digital consciousness, it, it seems to me that you've got not new universes being spun off. You just have consciousness moving through this really complex configuration space, which would be basically the, the program, right? The program that, that, uh, that is running the uh, reality learning lab. So it, it, it's um, some ways it's similar to the idea that we talked about last time where the whole universe is there potentially but none of it is actually there unless you're looking at it. Only now it applies across not just this universe, but all possible universes. Do, what do you think? Is there, is, there a, is there a possibility of overlap there between um, many worlds and, and digital consciousness? Yeah, this, um, yes, there is a possibility. Um, the one distinction I, I think I'd want to make here is that the pure Everett interpretation of quantum mechanics is that at the quantum mechanical level, every time a particle decides to spin one way or another or decay or not decay, a new universe is created. So yeah. this, and I think this is what Julian Barber, um, and I'm, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he believed in this theory. Um, in fact, a lot of scientists actually buy into the many worlds theory. And so in that sense, there are, there's this amazing, ridiculous level of, parallel realities where every possibility is there. And in that sense, we are moving through that configuration space. I don't believe in that aspect of quantum mechanics. I think the far simpler, the Occam's razor solution is there is some randomness and that randomness is built into the system that puts the randomness there. Um, and, and that we don't create the reality uh, until the reality needs to be created. And I think the evidence really supports that, and it's a far simpler solution. That said, I'm not against the idea of parallel realities or par parallel universes. Um, I think if you are to have a subjective experience, for example, where you want to create a simulation to see how something plays out, that is an instance of a parallel reality. Or there could be parallel reality learning labs that, that people um, you know, experience. Could you connect to them? I mean, think about the way a, um, a massively multiplayer online role-playing game works. They have servers that handle, you know, maybe 2,000 simultaneous players. So when you log in, they check your account, and, you know, your account goes to one particular server, so you're always interacting with the same players. But there's another server somewhere else in parallel running the same game, the same fantasy with another set of, of avatars. Could you bounce between them? Yeah, somebody could actually say, we're going to change this person's account so that they now go to that server. You know, that, that model is, is effectively the same kind of thing as saying parallel realities. You have different instances of, of the program running. Yeah, uh, that, 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 makes, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, it, to, to me, I, just, I like the idea that they're all there potentially, 
right? That um, kind of like Max Tegmark's mathematical universe, if you don't take it literally, but if you say, yeah, well, it's all kind of embedded in the numbers anyway, right? That, 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 mm-hmm. Like, the, like the, 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 the chunk of marble that you could carve any sculpture out of, right? That, the, that whatever uh, the underlying reality behind this reality is, it potentially could generate any of that stuff, right? It's, it, 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 what, it, what we are seeing, what we are sub, uh, subjective subjectively experiencing is this and there's a lot of other possibilities as well but that, that they actually do exist in some potential sense right i guess is my yeah uh, yeah and i think i think that's very fair to say and the potential sense could be uh you deciding to uh pursue a, a different simulation or a different path or something like that and then merging back with the mainstream at some point you know we do that when we fantasize we're what are we doing we're having a subjective experience about something that maybe nobody's ever had before. And so you know, what's going on in the background is probably a, you know, a digital simulation. Yeah, we're so, borrowing from another reality, whether it's there before or after we borrowed from it, right? There, at some yeah. point, we're, we're sort of subjectively experiencing that other universe. It's interesting. Right. All right, so let's come back to the idea of technical evolution, which we talked about in the first show. And I want to ask if maybe you're being a little too hard on the transhumanists. Let me, let me, let me lay this out here. I, I, I completely agree that, uh, and in fact, we talked about the word immortality and why it's a problematic term. And, and I think that attempts to achieve, quote, immortality are probably misguided. Is it possible that conscious entities with a 200 or 500 or 1,000 year lifespan might be able to learn some unique lessons, right? Is it possible that our evolution as a species is also going along with our evolution as individual entities. And so that some of the things that the transhumanists are looking for are also kind of part of the evolution that the universal consciousness is looking for. Uh, yes, I think, I think it is possible that you could learn things as you, uh, you know, hit ages that nobody has ever hit before. Um, but I think the basis for their you know, enthusiastic drive for immortality, for uploading consciousness and things like that is based on, uh, not on reincarnation, it's based on the fact that we only live one life and we're worm food after, after we die. And, you know, so, so it's fear-based. It's like, how do I prevent that from ever happening? Um, if they were to realize that they don't have to worry about that, that, that we do evolve and learn and have plenty of other experiences um, you know, within our consciousness later on, then there would be less uh, emphasis put on, you know, trying to extend life, I think. It's not that there, there might not be some lessons to learn or some experiences to get there. It's just that I feel like that rate of learning diminishes as we get older. We, you know, tend not to learn the life lessons that we do when we're younger, and I think that's kind of the planned obsolescence aspect of our bodies. Yeah, but maybe that works well up to a point, and then maybe there's a point where where we can we can live longer too. Yeah, you know, I I just to me it's in, the idea that maybe the species is evolving too. Kind of getting back to the idea of we're um, potentially moving towards an expanded consciousness or moving back to a universal consciousness, which is almost kind of two sides of the same coin. There's a, a real popular book amongst the more spiritual transhumanists, because they're not all materialists, right? I, I think what mm-hmm. you've described is kind of the, the materialist transhumanist view, but there's also people like Julio Prisco, and there's the Mormon Transhumanist Association, some of these groups. They, they, they take a much more spiritual slant. Anyway, the, the, the book is uh, the, oh, what's it called? The, uh, the Phenomenon of Man by Teilhard Chardin. He was a kind of a renegade uh, Jesuit priest, and, and he was an evolutionary biologist, and he talked about humanity evolving to this omega point and all of us kind of evolving together, and it's, the language from it has been adopted by a lot of transhumanists, and this idea that we're undergoing this kind of spiritual evolution is lost by a lot of them, but, but not all of them, and I, I just wonder, how does that idea of kind of a spiritual evolution of the species um, fit in with digital consciousness, and, and if that is part of it, or potentially part of it, is there maybe a bridge to some of those transhumanist ideas there? 
Yeah, I'm not sure I quite get the bridge. I might might want to read uh, some of the things that you're recommending here to see if I can uh, see another point of view there. Most of what I've read so far is driven from the materialist model. Um, but uh, the spiritual evolution is a, a key part of digital consciousness theory. It's, you know, I think that we are evolving as a species. Our minds, each individual mind, which is our consciousness, is evolving. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it, might it make a discrete jump at some point and say, um, yeah, it's going to evolve to the point where we can now um, access a much larger brain via, you know, uh, connection to computers or something like that, though, you know, via the singularity. Um, is, is that possible? Yeah, it's possible, but I think that's something that the consciousness would, would decide to do um, as opposed to, you know, we're going to force it to happen by uh, trying to upload our consciousness onto, a, uh, onto silicon. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I think it'll be, it'll be fun. We're going to have Julio Prisco on the show uh, sometime in the near future. Maybe we'll get you back and get you guys talking. I think it would be fun to explore some of the spiritual side of this stuff a little bit. Uh, yeah, that would be very interesting, for sure. So uh, we're coming, actually we're way past our, our time on this, but I, I've got to ask one more question, which is if, if you're a World Transform listener and you've hung in through uh, more than two hours of this discussion now at this point, uh, and you're thinking, so what? What does any of this have to do with me? What's what's your response to that individual? Yeah, I mean, I think we all search for truth um, to some extent, some people more so than others. Um, but I, I think the, the message here is that the the model that I'm talking about, which seems to have, you know, if we, again, use abductive logic, it seems to fit everything that's going on in the world, all the strange things that seem to be happening in science and, you know, metaphysics. Um, that model is a very uh, hopeful model. I mean, basically, it's, you know, showing that we aren't worm food when we die, that, that there is an afterlife. And so rather than a mentality of, you know, we're on this earth, we have to grab all that we can because we're competing with a set of uh, other individuals for a finite set of resources, and that drives all kinds of stuff. It drives wars and it drives... You know, uh, you know, greediness and, and the 1% and so on and so forth, if we realize that that is um, temporary, like the Buddhists say, all is temporary, um, and, and this theory is just very much in line with that idea, we realize that that's temporary, that becomes less of an issue. Wars don't even make sense anymore. We don't have to compete for resources. Arbitrary geographical lines don't, don't make any sense. We're all connected, um, recognizing that we're all connected, recognizing that our consciousnesses are all connecting, connected to um, animal consciousnesses. The same thing will cause us to treat animals with generosity and respect as well. So treating each other with generosity and respect, uh, treating animals with generosity and respect, not competing for uh, resources, those are all outcomes of the realization that we live in a, a you know, digital consciousness-based world. In addition, you recognize that our reality is soft in some way so that our intent can actually change reality, and that helps us get out of belief traps. You know, traps where we think, oh, it's always going to be this way. There's no, no hope, um, nothing to get out of. This is why placebos work. You know, this is why power of positive thinking works. Uh, so, you know, I think overall this just leads to a, uh, a more peaceful, harmonious, and just and balanced worldview. And, hey, we could all deal with that. I think uh, that, that would be good for all of us. Well, I hope if it didn't come through, in my questions and in our discussion. I, I hope you know, Jim, that I absolutely loved this book. I think it's profound. I think it's funny. I think it's unbelievably broad in scope, and yet it's still completely readable and accessible. And I just want to encourage anybody who's the least bit interested in this kind of stuff to check it out, especially if you think this all sounds like nonsense. Read the book, <laughs> folks. Give it, give, it a, give it a chance. As I mentioned, I find myself highly persuaded by the first part of the argument, the physical... Uh, the physics uh, arguments, right, and uh, the, the idea that we're living in a simulation, and a lot less certain but intrigued by the rest of it and ready to read some more on the subject and, and learn more. And I'm guessing, Jim, that that's exactly the kind of thing you're hoping for. 
Absolutely. And, and thank you very much, Phil, for the endorsement of the book. I, I really appreciate it. And thank you for putting these podcasts together and, you know, giving an opportunity for people who are thinking differently about things like that to, to talk about it and get the word out and, and have other people, you know, jump in. And I would encourage uh, anybody who's interested in this, please, you know, join us on our forum or, or uh, you know, my website, the, the Facebook page. Uh, you know, we do have people who have pretty active discussions about things and their experiences and, uh, you know, just love to open that up to anybody. So I really appreciate the platform for talking about this. Absolutely. We got a link to the web page there in the show notes, folks, so follow that. You can find resources there. You can find links to all the rest of the stuff. Jim Elvidge, thank you so much for being with us and all the best to you. Thank you very much, Phil. And thank you all for listening. We will be back next week with a brand new show on Topic Undetermined. And until next time, live to see it.